my name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I'm glad to see you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Peter this morning. And to let you know, we will um, resume our Joshua series next week. We'll be back in Joshua, beginning in Joshua 12, if you want to read ahead or remind yourself of where we've been in Joshua, um, where we left off a couple, about a month ago or so. Um, and as you do that, as you're turning to 1 Peter, I, I want to just mention to you, because um, some of you might not have heard, and, and uh, Don Guigné talked about it just briefly this morning, that we lost a, a brother here at Bethel this week. And um, some of you know Jim Tarter. Jim has been an elder here at Bethel for almost all the years that I've been here. Um, he's been at Bethel for 20 years and um, got a case of the flu that turned into pneumonia that ended up um, him needing to be on Wednesday night, uh, a trip to the ER that turned into being admitted into the ICU. And really within 48 hours, uh, Jim Tarter went home to be with the Lord and it's very sad to me, I will tell you. I, I loved Jim dearly, and more than that, Jim loved me dearly. And it's the loss of a friend and an elder. Uh, for some of you, he was your, he's your elder here. I, I know he's been ours. He, he'd call us about every month or two and talk to Leslie and say, how can I pray for y'all, and um, how can I pray for you, and is your husband being nice, and all those things. I have a stack in my office of just handwritten letters from, from him, uh, just his encouragement to me. And so I report that to you. One is, listen, I'm celebrating with, with all I have that Jim has face-to-face -face with the Lord. There is no better place for him to be. And, uh, and I grieve along with you, and I will miss my friend. And so on Saturday... We will have a celebration of his life, a service um, on Saturday. I, the details are forthcoming, but we will put that out to the congregation so that you'd be, you'll be able to know about that. And if, if you are able to attend, we'd love to see you on Saturday. With that, let me do this. Let me pray for Jim's family and his wife, um, his daughter, Allison, who's in from Colorado, and their son, Jamie. And um, if you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I, I just pray for the Tartar family. I pray for Ann. I pray you would, she would know your presence in real intimate ways. You, Father, you call yourself the God of all comfort, and I pray that she'd know that today. Father, I pray for all the needs that they'll have and all the decisions that will come up and Father you'll bring just the right people along to, um, to meet some of those needs Father I, I pray for Jim's daughter Allison and his son Jamie as they will miss their dad um, Father I pray you bring to mind um, lots of great memories as they spend time together this week Remembering him, celebrating him. And Father, for us as a congregation, um, we, 
We wouldn't pretend in any way that this is not a, the loss of an elder and the wisdom and the experience that Jim has brought to this church and been instrumental in helping lead us and guide us. And, Father, we will, we will miss that. And so with, um, with all of these requests and um, all of the joy we have for Jim's life and the grief that we feel, Father, we bring that to you. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit, amen. Well, I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. We'll look at just a few verses, uh, verses 3 through 9, and um, to, to set up what it is that we'll see that Peter is talking about here at the beginning of this letter to these believers that find themselves in really a pretty difficult circumstance. Uh, I'll tell you a story about um, a study that was done uh, from 1979 they were genetically identical twins, reared apart since infancy by different adoptive families in Ohio and unaware of each other's existence. As children, each twin had a dog named Toy. Each bit his fingernails. Since the age of 18, it suffered mixed headache syndrome, combined tension and uh, migraine headaches. Uh, each had been married twice. First to a Linda, then to a Betty. One twin named his son James Allen, A-L-A-N. The other, James Allen, A-L-L-E-N. Each had put a circular bench around a tree in his garden. Each had worked at a gas station and later part-time in law enforcement as a sheriff. Each chain smoked Salem's and preferred an occasional Miller Lite beer. Every summer, unbeknownst to the other, each had driven his family in a light blue Chevrolet from Ohio to the same beach in St. Petersburg, Florida for their summer vacation. They had similar voices, hand gestures, and mannerisms. One of the uh, doctors, uh, Dr. Claudia uh, Engelbrecht, she's on the team from the University of Missouri that did the study. And one of the things they were looking at was nature versus nurture. It's a phrase widely used to express the long-standing scientific debate about whether we are mainly made by our genes or whether influences from the environment are more important in our, our construction. Today, we know that our nature, our genes, and our environment, which includes um, our development in the womb, nutrition, personal contacts, parents, friends, experiences, the climate, etc., come together to make us the individuals that we are. We are the result of subtle cooperation of genes and environment. That's why the terminology nature versus nurture is misleading. It's misleading because it's not versus, but rather and or together. There are probably only a few traits such as hair color, eye color, blood type, 
that are determined solely by genes. The majority of our traits, they discovered, are influenced to a varying extent by our individual environments. This is obvious in language. The French speak French with a fluency no American can achieve. I set that up that way because I want us to see this is what Peter's going to be talking about this morning. He's going to be talking about nature, and he's going to be talking about nurture. He's going to be talking about our nature as believers in Christ. What is the nature of one that is a believer in Christ? What is the true nature of a Christian? And then secondly, he's going to turn his attention briefly to these readers about the nurturing of Christianity. He's going to be talking about our true nature and the gracious nurture of the believer. And so I want us to look at that together. Look look at 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 3. Let's look at the first couple of verses. He says this, Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Stop right there for a minute. Peter's writing to these believers. They are um, what he, he, he talks about them as uh, the dispersion or the diaspora. It means they're scattered out. They find themselves disconnected. And he wants them to know that what they believe by faith, even in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their trials, in the midst of being disconnected, what they believe by faith can be actually and radically experienced in their everyday life. Christianity is not just a philosophy to subscribe to. Peter wants them to know they have an eternal future that is breaking into their present life. And that's what it means to be a believer. Look, look again at verse 3, right at the beginning. Notice how he says it. Blessed be the God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing to note here is that this is not just a, he's not going to just go about listing a series of theological facts. Peter's not simply just informing us. He is in full-blown praise mode. Your, your Bible probably has an exclamation point at the end of that first sentence. I mean, his hands are up, his eyes are closed. He's feeling the bass line of the, of the worship band. He's worshiping here. The word Blessing or blessed is the word for eulogy, worthy to be praised. And in Luke chapter 1, in Luke's gospel, he records uh, Zechariah's eulogy, the father of John the Baptist. It's a song of praise. He's, he's been made mute since his encounter with God in the temple. Now his son is born. 
his son of old age and a barren womb. Not being able to speak, he'd written on a tablet that his name is John. And as soon as his voice returns, the silence is broken. And the first words after his silence, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, is what he says. That's what Peter's doing here. He's, he's worshiping. And these glor- glorious truths that he's writing, they're, they're not written analytically. It's meant to be worshipful according to his great mercy. God's great mercy, he says, that's the, that's the cause of everything he's about to say. According to God's great mercy. And the reality of God's mercy brings Peter to his knees. And God's mercy is simply this. It's that he has not given you what you deserve. Some of us need to be reminded of that. You know, in the midst of some of our petty frustrations and entitlements and all of the things that are very much a part of living in the 21st century. God's mercy, it simply means he has not given you what you deserve. The the sin, the rebellion, the, the insurrection of your life against his glorious majesty, with that, what that brings is that brings the, the, the penalty of death. And he's not given you, he's not given me what we deserve. No, instead his mercy is given to you graciously, t- t- tenderly, lovingly. He's given you life. And not, not only that, he, he's not simply just spared your life. He's given you a new life as a believer. The end of verse 3 says, he caused you to be born again. Literally what it means is you've been begotten all over again. And this time your father is God himself. See, there is a radical difference that Peter is setting up between the first birth and the second birth. See, your first birth, it ends in death. You you come into the world, you take your first breath, you live, you die. Life from its first breath is on the clock. And no matter what you do in this life, no matter how successful you are, no matter how much you make of it, how much you get, in the end, death And you can take nothing with you. The second birth is radically different. It's born again, he says, to a living hope. Caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a dying hope. See, life is the end. Eternal life. Life everlasting. And it's, it's a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. God is our Father And we have been born again into the life of Jesus, the one who conquered death, the one resurrected. That's pretty amazing. And that's just one verse. And then he goes to verse 4, and and he says this. He says, and, and then on top of that, to an inheritance. The first birth ends in death and leaves you destitute. 
You, you take nothing with you. The billionaire's bankrupt at the grave. But the second birth, the new birth, it comes with an inheritance. Riches of heaven, the glory of God. That's your destiny. This is your future. And three words describe that inheritance. Actually, look at the way he does it. He doesn't have words to adequately, to adequately describe the beauty of it, the satisfaction, the infinite wealth. He, he can't tell us fully what it is. He can only tell us what it isn't. It, it doesn't perish. It's imperishable. It doesn't die, it doesn't diminish, never loses value. It's ever more valuable. It's never going to be defiled, which means it's never tainted, it never spoils, it never grows stale, and it never fades. It endures, it never loses its beauty, it will never be unsatisfying, it never grows old, you never become bored with it. And it's kept in heaven for you. It's secure. It can never be hacked or stolen or lost. Nothing will keep you from it because it's kept safe by God. It's his and it's for you. It's your inheritance and he guards it with his power. And then you get to verse 5 and verse 5 is interesting. So you look at it closely, you realize that it's not simply the inheritance that's guarded. Look at it again. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is the inheritance being guarded, you are being guarded. You're kept safe. Your Father guards you with His power. You're safe in Him. He'll never let you go. All of this for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. See what Peter's done in just a few verses. We didn't look at verse 2, but if you've got your Bibles, you can glance at it because he begins in verse 2 with a foreknowledge of God the Father, but before time. And by the time you get to the end of verse 5, he takes us to the end of time. From beginning to end, God's loved you. He's known you. He's chosen you, set you apart. This is what Peter's saying. And then he sent his son to satisfy all the perfection that you need, to shed his blood as the sacrifice and cause you to be born again and to become himself your father. And your eternity is secure. I mean, that's praise. That's worthy of worship. And God's done it all. And, and you don't belong to the world anymore. If you're a believer, that's what Peter's saying about you. You don't belong to the world anymore. You belong to God. He's your father. And you're his son or, your daughter, or his daughter. That's who you are. That is your nature. That's what Peter wants you to know. That's your nature. Now, He's going to speak to us about the gracious nurture that comes about in the life of a believer. Look at verse 6. Let's pick up there. 
In this you rejoice. Though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So remember, but believer, as a believer, you've been born again, a new life, a second birth. Paul says it this way, the old is gone, the new has come. This is a life that's entirely new. It's not an improvement. It's not an extreme makeover of what was. You're not a, it's not a fixer-upper of the first birth. It's a new begotting with a new fatherhood, a new life. And the first life, the first birth, was entirely of this world, and it ends in death. And, and, and the second birth is something altogether different. See, the first birth, you might think about it this way. It's like being drafted to the NFL or the the NBA, something like that. That's why the first thing that a player does is he'll hire an agent. And the agent's there to make sure that the player gets the biggest and best contract he can get because their career's on the clock. When their bodies are strong and their physical abilities are at their peak, they are at their best. Every game, every hit, every pounding of the knee, their ability diminishes. There's a shelf life, if you will, to their glory. Boris Becker, the great tennis player, has been in the news lately. When he was at the very top of his game in the tennis world, he was on the brink of suicide. He said it this way. He said, I had won Wimbledon twice before. Once as the youngest player, I I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they're so unhappy. I found I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. See, the first birth, like, like, it's, it's living life backwards. It's chasing glory, trying to outrun suffering and outrun trial, outrun the first birth reality in a first birth world, and life moves from strong to weak. And the goal is let's, all, all the glory I can get now, prolong suffering until later, And you try to get enough now to ease the suffering that's to come. But in the end, no matter how much you have, how successful you are, how great you become, the end of a first birth life always comes, and it's never glorious. Leaves you with nothing, nothing but a gravestone, nothing but an urn. And the second birth life that Peter's talking about is exactly the opposite. It's a life 
that never diminishes. It, it, it's, it's a life that's ever increasing. It's a life that moves from weak to strong. It's not like your physical life. This is, a, this is your spiritual life. It, it's unlike your first birth, the life that's moving, you know, from ever-increasing capacity you, for glory. You, 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 and and, and uh, not a never, you know, never-ending capacity is being grown in you. So what Peter's doing, he's trying to give the readers some perspective. We need this perspective. We desperately need it. So we find ourselves as believers living a second birth life in a first birth world. The life of our new birth, our new life, it is out of step with the world that we live in. That's why Peter calls them exiles. They're strangers in the world. They're out of step. They're not at home. And so how do you endure this first birth world with all its suffering and all its trials That's why he's writing. And he wants you to know this is part of the gracious nurturing of God in your life. Look at it. First of all, verse 6. We are to rejoice. It's something to be exceedingly joyful about. Our life is not lived in a way that the best days of our life are constantly behind us. It's just the opposite. The best is yet to come. Secondly, our experience in life will be exactly the opposite of what it was before. It's no longer glory now, suffering later. It's suffering now, glory later. That's the experience. Third, whereas in the first birth life, suffering diminishes us, you know, our, our capabilities, our capacities, and because all of that threatens our glory, it whittles away at it. The second birth life, those that are born again, the trials, the sufferings actually increase our capabilities, capacities, and increase the glory that is to come. Ever expanded, never diminished. The fourth thing he says is what's being expanded is our faith. The suffering actually serves believers in expanding their faith, making faith stronger, making it more pure. Suffering moves us towards the perfection of our faith. The fifth thing he says is that all of this is for the purpose of making us ready for the day in which Jesus is revealed in his glorified flesh. He will come in all of his glory and honor and praise, and the suffering now readies us to be able to take in all of who he is. In other words, everyone that's a believer will be filled to the brim of their capacity. You'll be filled to overflowing with the glory and honor and praise of Jesus. Absolutely filled. Here's what the question is. What will your capacity be? 
How much will you be enlarged through the suffering and trials in this life? You see what I'm saying? Let me use this illustration. It's a version of how Jonathan Edwards described it. I've I've used it before, but it's been a while, so I'll remind you of it. Jesus comes and in a glory and honor and praise, um, think of it as he comes in a buffet of majesty, okay? Now, kind of like the China buffet. Anybody ever been to one of those? Okay. Believers will have different capacities with which to enjoy the majesty of the buffet. Here's the example, all right? For instance, if we were at the China buffet, now, this is where it breaks down, all right? What I'm about to say applies only to the China buffet, not the Majesty buffet, all right? But to illustrate the point, if Leslie and I went to the China buffet, she could, she could go through the buffet, fill one plate, eat till she was full, be satisfied because she will have eaten all she can. I don't know, you can finish it. I, on the other hand, have a, what should we say, greater capacity (laughs) with which to enjoy the buffet, okay? My, My capacity is larger. I could eat two or three or four plates. Same principles at work. See, what suffering does in this life, what the trials do in this life, is it expands our faith, our spiritual capacity, the the purity, the genuineness of our faith to behold, to take in the glory of Jesus, the inheritance of the Father. A, A thimble and a bucket both can be filled to the brim. Both can experience the overflowing of what they're filled with. But a thimble and a bucket have different capacities. See, what Paul, what Peter's wanting his readers to know is, see, you can rejoice in suffering because what suffering's doing, it is the nurturing of your Christian faith. By nature, this is who you are. You're born again. You have a new fatherhood. You're born all over again. This is who you are. And then, By God's grace, he nurtures you, expanding you and growing you. And so when suffering comes and when trials come, that's why Peter says, rejoice. Because something wonderful is being brought about. Because of that. This is what he's saying in verse 8. You love Jesus when you don't see him, but you, but you 
love him by faith. You believe in him. You rejoice in him with joy that's inexpressible. Filled with glory when you don't see him. That's, that's faith. And faith is from above. And believers have faith from God. And because of that, there's this deep current below the waters of the circumstances in this world that flow with love for him. Sometimes it's faintly felt. Sometimes we feel the, the rushing current of those deep waters. See, faith in Jesus comes with a love and a joy for him and in him. It's inexpressible, which means hard to describe. It's filled with glory. And these necessary trials come as the gracious nurturing of a loving father who's bringing us into the likeness of his son. Let me see if I can help illustrate this. Charles Spurgeon, a man that was intimately acquainted with suffering and trials, sufferings from without and particularly sufferings from within. He suffered from depression. He wrote this. Understand then, dear friends, that for many necessary purposes, there's a needs be for trials. Peter says there's, if need be, that there should be a trial of your faith. You, you, you'll get that trial because God in his wisdom will give faith what faith needs. Do not be anxious to enter into trial. I do not know whether my experience is that of all God's people, but I am afraid that all the grace that I've gotten out of comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on the head of a penny. But the good I have received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Now you put it all together. The trial comes, it tests our faith the gold, you know, it's tested by fire. The dross is burned away. The impurities are burned away. What we're left with is, is pure. And the sufferings that come, they burn away the impurities. They leave us with a pure faith that comes from God. Suffering pushes out, the, the, uh, the, out of the surface of the circumstances. But it's not the trials, notice that he's speaking of. It's the grief of those trials. That's what it says in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been, what? Grieved by various trials. Sometimes we pick verse 6 and we pluck it out of the Bible and we use it to comfort each other, and that's fine. I, uh, Confess, I've done it. The scenario usually goes like this. Someone has a trial, a crisis, a diagnosis, something, something bad's come. There's a situation that they're in the middle of. It's not welcome. It could be all kinds of things. And we, and we say rejoice. It's only temporary. It's a trial. It's suffering. But it's only for a while. Rejoice. The trial will make you stronger. And then we quote verse 6. 
Now, the truth of what we said is the truth indeed. This is true. Trials are temporary. They build our faith. Walking through them with our eyes on Jesus makes him look glorious. That is absolutely true. When we see people walk this way through trials, cancer and crisis, we take note of it, we imitate it. But interestingly enough, this is not who Peter's writing to. He's not simply saying the ones that go through the various trials. He's writing to the ones who've been grieved by them. And the Greek word means sadness or sorrow or sunken low, pain. It's a word related that means to have a stormy sea. Christians don't just experience pain and suffering and grief. You're actually affected by it. We're grieved by it. We're troubled by it. Jesus knew this. Listen, there are many times in his, in his gospels, trial comes, suffering came, threats, and he passed through them without any trouble. You know, foxes have holes and birds have, uh, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, unfazed. Storm comes up, Sea of Galilee, be still, unfazed. That wasn't always the case. The time of grief and anguish and sorrow in the garden, the night that he's crucified. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. It's the same word, grief, sorrow. Spurgeon said, he had to bear the burden, not with his shoulders omnipotent, but with shoulders that were bending to the earth beneath a load. And you and I must not always expect a giant faith that can remove mountains. Sometimes, even to us, the feather must be a burden that we may in all things be like our head. It's how we are being nurtured into the likeness of His Son. Popular blogger, Marie Denny, she, she was writing about when she was going to be reunited with, although she'd never known her father, but he had sought her out. She, she'd never known him in her life. She's, she writes this, I was afraid. I had no expectations. Trying to protect myself and keep myself ready for the worst. This day, I had the weight of the world on my shoulders as I pulled up. Uh, my, my cousin, who if not for her, this wouldn't have happened, was there with my father. He was tall. He was a bit of a light bright. Uh, he was handsome. He had tears. And I looked just like him. We stared. We hugged. There was silence. The only thing I could find myself saying was, I look just like you. Can't even begin to put words in how therapeutic it was to look in the eyes of the man you came from, knowing where you come from. She I vaguely resemble my mother, but my father? Even as I write this, I have tears. Overwhelming, disbelief, the relief, all my heart has filled all my heart and mind. There was no denying it. First John 3, John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Let me leave you four things this morning, real quick. What do you do when you suffer? When you're walking through the suffering, the trial, believing, you want to believe, you come back here to first Peter, you want to believe, this is expanding, this is enlarging, this is purifying. What do you do? One, I want you to remember, God is near the brokenhearted. The beginning of the Bible, he begins by telling the patriarchs, and then Moses, and then Joshua, as we saw, I, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's near. In Matthew 28, the last thing Jesus says to his disciples before he says, I am with you always. In Romans chapter 8, we find Paul writing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And even when you cry out in prayer and you think, is God even listening to me? You can turn over to Revelation chapter 5 and then Revelation chapter 8 and Psalm 141 and you can see that he absolutely is listening to you and that no prayer goes unheard. In fact, you find in those verses in Revelation 5 and 8 and in the Psalms that God saves and treasures those prayers and keeps them in these golden bowls and they become the incense of the throne room. He is near the brokenhearted. You can remember Psalm 139 that whatever you're going through is not a surprise to God. He has seen every moment of your life. In fact, it says all the days of your life were laid out before him, and then he fearfully and wonderfully made you with that in view. It's not anything you're walking through now that you haven't been intimately created by God to walk through. Thirdly, suffering is a gift. I'm going to quote to you my least favorite verse in all of the New Testament, all right? Philippians 1.29, listen to what it says. For it has been granted to you, graciously granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should, and then he's going to say two things, all right? It's been graciously granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should, and you're like, I can't wait to hear this. And the first thing he says is, not only believe in him, which when you put something in the not only clause, you know what that means? That's second to whatever's coming afterwards. All right? Not only to believe in him, not only to experience salvation, but as the phrase is constructed, something greater 
he has given you. And you're thinking, man, that must be something great. So what he says. For it has been graciously granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer. And you're like, oh, I don't like that verse. And then you look to highlight it with a Sharpie marker or something, you know. It's a gift from God. He's he's graciously granted them to believe and to suffer. Suffering is not something we should ever go look for. I'm not saying that. It's something we can receive as God's gift when it comes. And seeing suffering as a gift from God changes how you respond to it. It's a gracious gift because it refines us. It brings intimacy. That's why believers can embrace suffering as a gift from God. You'll hear them say, I would never choose to go through it again, but I wouldn't trade what I went through for the world. The intimacy and the grace and the closeness I felt to God. And finally, James chapter 1 tells us suffering, what it does is it, it draws up the springs of living water that are implanted in your heart. And you just have to go to James 1 to see what he says. He's speaking of trials and testing of faith and the implanted word gets drawn to the surface. The implanted word of God gets drawn to the surface of our life. So one of the things you can take note of is when you're suffering, what is it, what scriptures come to mind What's being drawn to the surface that God would want you to peer into? John Bunyan said this, and I'll close with it. He said, when the fear was most fearful, when I'd started down the road of fear, even as it were at at nothing else but my shadow, yet God as being very tender to me. Did not want me to suffer torment, but would with one scripture and another strengthen me against all. That's what he's talking about. In the midst of suffering, God would bring to his mind that which had been implanted in his heart and bring it to the surface of his life and comfort him with one scripture after another. What is it that God brings to your mind? What does the Spirit of God draw out of the depths of your soul as a believer in the midst of suffering? Take note of that. We have no idea, none of us, what 2023 holds. And after the last few years, I know many of us would find ourselves shell-shocked a little. But we do not have to worry, believer. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray. We pray with full knowledge that it can seem terrifying, like to Spurgeon or Bunyan, like to any of us. 
any of us born again and living in the midst of a first birth world, but that we have nothing to fear. And so, Father, we pray your will on our lives this year. We, we pray that we would rejoice well with the, with the joys that come. Father, we would embrace as a gift everything that comes into our life. We confess it hasn't come but through your hand, and yet, Father, nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. And so I pray for the ways that you will purify our faith and expand our capacity and bring us more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. We trust you with all of it in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.